God, we come to you and we are uh, needy people. Uh, Lord, we need your help in understanding this passage, both uh, to comprehend it and also to apply it. God, we gather here not to hear from a flawed, inadequate man, but we come because we want to hear from the living God. And so would you speak uh, through your word, God, we are listening. Would you open our hearts, God, we want to be changed and transformed into the image of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Meet Joe. Joe is someone that you probably know. Uh, He grew up in a Christian family. He has uh, parents who are both followers of Jesus, siblings who are followers of Jesus. And Joe, from an early age, uh, was raised in the church. Whenever the doors were open, Joe was at church. He made a profession of faith in Jesus at the age of 13, uh, was then baptized. And Joe appeared to be growing in his faith. Uh, with Bible study, prayer. Uh, He was coming to know God in a deeper way. He avoided the big sins kind of throughout childhood. But upon high school graduation, Joe went on to college, and he kind of hung out with a certain group of people that challenged his faith. They threw at him all kinds of questions that shook the foundation of his faith. Joe uh, stopped reading the Bible, stopped praying, stopped going to church, and uh, began to doubt the existence of God. Joe is now 30 years old, already twice divorced. He's an alcoholic. He is painfully bitter to be around, and he wants nothing to do with Christianity. If you were to sit down with Joe's parents and they asked you, is Joe going to heaven? What would you say? How would you respond to that question? It's a really important question. I think it's important because We all know people like Joe. In fact, you might even be here this morning like Joe, and for whatever reason, you're here at church today. Or maybe you're not exactly like Joe. Maybe there are some similar characteristics, but maybe you've just been wrestling with, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that I'm going to heaven? How much spiritual fruit, how much godliness do I need in my life to prove that I'm a Christian? Those are really important questions, questions I think that our passage this morning answers. Now, before we jump in, I've just been praying all week that God would do three specific things this morning. I know God will do more than three things, but three things have been on my heart as I consider this passage and even this message. Number one, I'm praying for God to comfort some of us today. I think for for those who are here today and you have a, a tender conscience Uh, Maybe you are uh, prone to doubt, or you are um, someone who assumes the worst about yourself spiritually. My my prayer is that God would comfort you with this passage, that you'd be encouraged and even exhorted as you follow Jesus. But secondly, I've been praying that God would give us a level of caution for some of us. So not comfort, but caution, because there are some here who you need to consider carefully how it is that you are living and the decisions that you are making. That perhaps there's a pride-filled heart that's, that's led to an overconfidence, maybe even a hard-heartedness or a cavalier type of spirit. If that's you, this is a, an important message uh, to hear today. And then thirdly, I'm, I'm asking the Lord uh, for conviction. I'm asking God uh, for some of us to feel the full weight of this passage 
But there are some where there needs to be an acknowledgement that your faith perhaps isn't genuine due to the habitual sinfulness that's in your life. And so a type of, of conviction from the Holy Spirit and embracing repentance is something I'm praying for. Look, there is something for us all in this passage. These are really important verses. And, and just to kind of review what we've seen so far in 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 7, Peter has been painting a picture of godliness, uh, to put it simply. He has described and explained what godliness looks like in verses 5 uh, through 7. He's explained what, what the source is for our godliness. It's God's divine power in verses 3 through 4. And he's also exhorted us with urgency to pursue godliness in our own lives. Well, this morning, in verses 8 through 11, I think he's going to share with us three results that occur in our lives uh, because of godliness, or three maybe benefits of godliness in our lives that will address even Joe's situation and some of those questions that I've raised. So here's the first result that I see in verse 8. A result of godliness is spiritual effectiveness, spiritual effectiveness. If you look at verse 8, he begins with the word for. For is a very important word as you are studying the scriptures. This is a, a word that is often used to link what has come before the verses, and it's linking what's coming after. And so Peter's using this word to link verses 5 through 7 with 8 through 11. It's a connecting word that prompts further explanation. So if you walked away from last week or the last couple of weeks wanting more, wanting more explanation, more description, wondering how this all fits together, Peter is about to give it. And he says, if these qualities. Now, what qualities is he talking about? Well, the qualities that he listed in verses 5 through 7, those eight rungs in the spiritual ladder of Christ's likeness. And he says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, something will occur in your life. He says that the result of these qualities that are abounding will keep you from being spiritually ineffective or unfruitful, which is stating it in the negative. We could actually state it in the positive this way, that if you not only have these qualities, but they are increasing, they are abounding, they are growing more and more as a reality that's consistent in your life, then you will be spiritually effective. Now, that's something that we all want as followers of Jesus. We want to be spiritually effective, bearing fruit in our lives. But this idea of increasing is not in terms of of kind of calculating our improvement when it comes to godliness, as if I grew 5% more loving last year and I'm on pace for 7% more self-controlled this year. No, what Peter has in mind is a type of Christ-likeness that's overflowing. It's the idea of abounding so much that you have it in excess. Okay, just to illustrate this, uh, if your life was a cup and uh, the water is Jesus or Christ-likeness. What Peter is calling us to is to have our lives so filled up with Jesus, the cup of our lives. We're just filling our lives with the living water of Jesus so much that what's overflowing out of our lives is Christ-likeness, that we want more and more and more of Jesus to the point that over time you actually become and live like Jesus so that when life bumps you, And it bumps you every day, like it bumps me. What spills out of you 
is actually Jesus. It's Christ-likeness. That's spiritual effectiveness in short. That's what it means to bear fruit spiritually. That when you turn around for three seconds and your two-year-old throws all of his toys in the toilet, what spills out of you is determined and based on what you've been putting in you before that moment. Is it Jesus that spills out of you? Have you been filling your life up with Jesus? Because if so, your response in that moment will be Christ-likeness. It will be self-control. It will be patience. When you're driving and you're late or you're stuck in traffic and someone cuts you off, what spills out of you in that moment? When your coworker is annoying the daylights out of you, what spills out of you? See, it's interesting here that Peter states that these qualities are yours and they're increasing. He's almost assuming that or implying that you can have them, but they're not increasing. It's possible to have them, but not have that much of them. I think the reality is, is that for some of us, our lives are not overflowing with Jesus and Christ's likeness because we're not filling our lives up to the brim with Jesus. We might be filling our lives up with just a little bit of Jesus, just enough to appease our consciences, but not so much that it's overflowing when life bumps us. So when life bumps us and you don't have a whole lot of Jesus in you, what spills out is selfishness. It's impatience. It's snippiness. It's anger. And the result of that is being ineffective, unfruitful. That's what that looks like. And this word ineffective is actually a really interesting word. It, it means to be idle. It means to be even worthless. It's used all throughout the New Testament. Jesus used this word in Matthew 20 as he's describing the idle workers that waste their day in the marketplace instead of working. Uh, James uses it in the famous verse, James 2.20, faith without works is dead or ineffective, idle, uh, worthless. Like, I just want to pause here this morning and ask you, do you ever feel like that spiritually? Do you ever feel like you're just spiritually ineffective? You're not bearing a, a whole lot of fruit in your life. You're wondering, am I worthless in God's kingdom? Am I being effective at all with what God wants to do? Look, if you're, if you're asking those questions, if you feel that today, just want to encourage you to go back to what are you filling your life up with? Because what comes out of you is based on what you're putting in you. And Peter's crystal clear here. He's saying the more transformed you become, the more that you look like Jesus, the more effective you will be, the more that you will bear fruit. Now, I've said it before, but I think many of our problems spiritually stem from having a spiritual gap issue. What I mean by that is that we struggle with a gap or distance between our confessional faith and our functional faith. In other words, there tends to be, a, there tends to be a, the distance between what we claim to believe and how we actually live out our beliefs. For example, in my own life, uh, when I'm spending time with the Lord in the mornings and I'm drinking my coffee, that's the best version of myself. I feel like I am most godly in those moments. But what tends to happen an hour or two later is that you know maybe when I'm driving and I'm, I'm late or I'm stuck in traffic and someone cuts me off, my blood starts to boil. 
right? I'd start to become angry. And in those moments, that reveals a gap issue between what I claim to believe and how I'm actually living out my beliefs. Here's the reality. In those traffic moments, that's actually revealing who you really are. That's revealing what's in your heart. The, the traffic and the person who cut me off didn't cause me to become angry. It revealed the anger that was already there in my heart. And so we need to stop doing something, church. We need to stop blaming our circumstances or people or these other issues and, and having those things cause the sin that's in our lives. It's just revealing the things that are already there in our hearts. And God will often use uh, those moments when we get bumped to reveal that so we can confess it and repent and fill our lives up with more and more of Jesus. And so spiritual effectiveness, I think, occurs in the progressive narrowing of those gaps. When we're closing the distance more and more and more, that's what it means to be spiritually effective. And that process is messy. It's, it's often not linear. It's oftentimes ordinary and mundane, but in the end, it is glorious. Because the more and more you look like Jesus, the greater impact you will have on the people around you. Look, let me just say something to parents and grandparents for a moment. Parents and grandparents, what our kids and our grandkids need the most is not for us to be relevant. I know that might be a hot take, but what our kids and grandkids need the most is not for us to be cool, for us to be hip, for us to know the, the newest and latest songs on the radio or the, the newest movie that's out or how to tweet or how to TikTok or how to do whatever they're doing these days. That's not what our kids and grandkids need the most. What they need the most is for mom and dad, for their grandparents to love Jesus with all that they are to be as godly as possible. You want to make an impact on the next generation? You want to shape and, and, and mark your kids and grandkids forever? Be as godly as possible. Make every effort in pursuing the Lord Jesus with all that you are. That will change the next generation. Don't worry about being cool or hip or relevant or in style. Pursue Jesus and that will change them forever. And that's what it means to be spiritually effective. That is the result of being godly. That's the first thing that I see. The second thing, though, Peter continues, another result is that you will confirm your election. So you have effectiveness, you've got election here. Verses 9 and 10, admittedly, these are difficult verses to understand. And so let me disentangle them by looking at three kinds of people that I think Peter is describing here in verses 9 and 10. The first person in verse 9, I would describe as the backslider. Now, those of you with a Baptist background, when I say the word backslider, chills probably run up your spine, right? So let me just delicately unpack what this means. A backslider is someone who is likely converted, although there's no assurance of that, but they have uh, slid into a pattern of sin, Okay, they've not, they've, they've, um, not taken steps forward in their spiritual development. They've actually taken steps back. Or to use the latter metaphor last week, they're not going up the rung of spiritual Christ-likeness. They're actually going down, and they might have even jumped off the ladder altogether. Listen to how Peter describes them. 
He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So notice, this person has been cleansed from their former sins, but they've forgotten that. He he says that they've become blind spiritually and short-sighted in the sense of failing to see what they should see, which is their forgiveness. Because they're almost like squinting to the point where they're unable to see what is most important, which is the fact that their sin debt has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And so because they've forgotten that, they're now blind spiritually. They're living and walking without the ability to see properly falling into sin. And it's because they've forgotten that they were washed and made clean by Jesus. In the Beals household, uh, we have a bedtime routine, just like many of you. We've got three young kids, and so Lindsay and I, we need a game plan, we need order, and honestly, we need a marker for us that lets us know that bedtime is coming so that we can kind of relax for the rest of the evening. Well, for us, one of those markers is bath time, that when bath time comes, we know bedtime is around the corner. Now, bath time in the Beals household is chaos. Like, they love to play, and so you add water to that, and it's just madness. And they love it. They're enjoying it. But the point of bath time is not to have fun, necessarily. It's not to be crazy and, and laugh all. It's to get clean. It's to wash away the dirt from that day, to, to wash away the, the markers, the, the crayons, the, the chalk, even the chocolate chip cookie crumbs on their, on their face. It's to get them clean. Well, one thing that tends to happen that's a very frustrating moment for me, it's one of those when life bumps you, is when after the bath, one of the kids, or all three of the kids, do something that makes them dirty again. And and I'm like, man, why did you just do that? Why did you think that right now is the time to open up an art project and you get the glue and glitter out again, or, or to go outside and get dirty again. Like, like, what are you thinking? And it causes me to ask them, have you forgotten that we just took a bath? Like, I've already cleaned you. I've already washed you. Like, I don't want to do this again. Like, have you forgotten what we just did? I think that's exactly what Peter is saying here in verse 9. I think Peter is saying to the backslider and to us that you were washed by the blood of Jesus. You were declared forgiven, clean, made new. But because you have forgotten that, you're now blindly living in the dirtiness of your sin once again. That's what he's saying. And so, follower of Jesus, one of the most important things that you can remember, that you can soak in, to use the bath metaphor, in order to aid your pursuit of godliness is by remembering that your sins have been forgiven. Do not take that for granted. That is the most powerful and important truth in all of the universe, if you're a Christian, that your sin debt has been paid for, that the weight of eternal condemnation is no longer on your shoulders, that that was placed on Jesus and he has paid for it in full, that your sins are forgiven. And so you can stand before a holy God, and you're clean, you're righteous, you're accepted because of Jesus. Just thinking about that, like, 
all of your sin, all of the, the dirtiness of your sin and, and disobedience and guilt and shame, you, you rolling around in the mud of rebellion towards God, God has taken all of that. And because of Jesus, because he paid for your sin on the cross, God has washed you and made you clean and has forgiven you. Isn't that amazing? It's so amazing that when you remember that, it keeps you from dirtying yourself in the sins that you were once engaged in. Keeps you from committing the same sin that Jesus already paid for. And yet the backslider here has forgotten that. And as a result, they're blindly living in sin. So that's the first kind of person here. The second person, though, is in verse 10b. We'll come to 10a in a moment. But 10b, it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter, I think, is introducing another possibility in which one who fails to increase in these qualities can lead to falling spiritually. Now, this word does not mean to stumble, like to stumble into sin. We all do that. We're all in process. Rather, this word literally means to fall, and they use this in battle, to fall in battle to your death. So Peter's applying that now spiritually, and he's describing somebody who has fallen away from God indefinitely. They have forsaken God. They have abandoned him. They have committed uh, apostasy, which is this second kind of person, someone who, has, uh, someone who is an apostate, someone who used to follow God, maybe has been around other believers, but no longer is. Now, this is not to suggest that one can lose their salvation, but rather the, the falling away from God indefinitely reveals that for this person, they were not truly saved to begin with. Now, this might actually speak into Joe's situation from uh, the introduction, but this is a very serious place to be. This is meant to warn us. This is meant to, uh, to kind of wake us up from, from thinking and assuming that just because you prayed a prayer when you were six, that you're in, that you don't need to worry about anything else. You don't need to worry about obedience. You don't need to worry about godliness. You prayed some prayer and so you've got your card, you're going to make it to heaven no matter what. That's not biblical Christianity. Being a biblical Christian is one who perseveres until the very end. Okay, he's speaking into this important doctrine, which is the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, which means that those with whom God saves and calls, he will keep until the very end. Okay, he will enable them to repent, to obey, to be faithful as he's holding on to them until the end. He will complete that which he began. They will not fall or abandon God. Why? Because they belong to God. And as Jesus said in John 10, verse 28, I gave them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand not even your own sinfulness, that God will cause repentance to come into your life, enable you to turn and come back to God. Now, the challenge here is when I'm describing an apostate, the challenge here is no one, 
No one begins the Christian life and says, I want to do that when it's all said and done. No one says, you know what, before I'm finished in the Christian life, I want to fall away from God. No one sets out to do that. So how does it happen? It happens gradually. It happens slowly. It happens subtly where one small compromise at a time to the point where you wake up and, and you all of a sudden want nothing to do with the Lord. That's usually how the process works. And so this verse is given to us, screaming at us, be on guard against every form of sin. Peter is kind of exhorting us, using this warning here as a motivation to finish well by saying, don't play around with sin. Don't get as close to the fire as you possibly can. You will get burned. So as we think about the doctrine of the preservation of the saints and, and this warning here, it's, it's meant to, to motivate us to pursue godliness and repent of all kinds of sin. So that's the second kind of person. The third, though, going back up to verse 10a, uh, is the elect, those who have been chosen by God. Listen to this. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Peter's describing those who are saved, those who were chosen by God before the foundations of the world. But notice here, he's exhorting us to be diligent to confirm our salvation, not to create it. God's grace should not lead to moral relaxation, but to intense efforts. For example, if you were somehow elected and chosen to be part of the USA Olympic basketball team, that would be very surprising, number one. But number two, uh, you would accept that because you wouldn't want to miss out on that kind of experience. That's something you wouldn't want to pass up. And so accepting that election, you're part of the team. And so what would happen? Well, you would be asked to act like you're part of the team. Show up to the practices. Make every effort to grow in your skill, even though there's a giant gap. But for you, as you're around those other players, as you're around those great coaches, you would improve. There would be some steps in your game. Now, your improvement didn't elect you to the team. Your election led to your eager improvement. It's the same thing as being a Christian, that God calls us, God elects us to be part of his team, to be saved. Now he wants us to act like it. He wants us to put forth the necessary effort and to make sure that we are eager and diligent in improving and being a Christian here. Or as Peter puts it, confirm your calling, confirm your election. That Peter is saying here, to enter heaven, we must in some way be fitted for it. Okay, now this echoes what we see throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he gives this long list of different sins. He gets to the end of the verse 10. He says, these, these individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. In Galatians 5, another long list of sins. He gets to the end of it. He says, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the unrepentant, the habitual sinners who have no pursuit of godliness are demonstrating an unconverted heart, a heart that's not been captured by God's grace. 
Now you might be wondering, well, Chris, I, I struggle with sin. Uh, I'm far from perfect. I confess it. I repent. Uh, does this mean I'm not saved? Does this mean I'm not going to heaven? Uh, look, if you're wondering that, the, the call here is not towards perfection, but towards direction. It's not about sinlessness. After all, 1 John 1.8 says, if you confess that you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself. So it's not about sinlessness. It's about the direction of your life, the trajectory of your life. Is it pointing towards increased Christ-likeness or less? Are you living a life where you're going up the rungs of the spiritual ladder of Christ-likeness or are you going down? Not to say you can't go two rungs up, one down, two rungs up, one down, because we're all in process. But this is much more about the direction of our life being pointed towards Christ-likeness and making repentance a daily occurrence because we all are in process. We all fall into sin. Like you might be wondering, well, does that make me saved? I, look, you just wrestling with that is a fruit. If you're not saved, people who aren't saved don't care about that. They have no concern whether or not they're saved or not. So you wrestling with repenting and confessing and waging war against your sin is a great sign that you are saved and following after God. Now, we don't have time to unpack this beautiful doctrine. One of my favorite doctrines is, uh, is the assurance of our salvation. But, but that's what's behind these verses here. The doctrine of assurance is a God-given confidence for every true believer in Christ of their present approval before God and their future acceptance by the Father, or as Peter puts it, confirming your election. All right, finally, we have the third result of godliness. We'll end with this. Verse 11 is a welcomed entrance, a welcomed entrance. So we have, we have effectiveness, we have election, we have entrance. Verse 11, he says, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter says, you will be warmly welcomed into God's eternal kingdom, for in this way, what way is he talking about? Well, growing in godliness, these qualities that he has listed of Christ's likeness. Now, of course, entry into heaven is provided by Jesus, faith in Jesus. But how do you know your faith in Jesus is genuine? Even the demons believe and they shudder. You know that your faith is genuine by producing godliness and Christ-likeness. See, Peter is emphasizing here the important role of our obedience to Christ as it relates to having assurance of our salvation. Is the Christian assurance based on the external and objective finished work of Jesus on the cross in our salvation? Yes. A, a thousand yeses. Are there other grounds of assurance? Also, yes. While our assurance is fundamentally grounded in the work of Christ, our obedience and godliness is also an important validating support for such assurance. Again, Peter's insisting that for us to enter heaven, we must be fitted rightly for it. I love what J.C. Ryle has to say about this. He says, lastly, we must be holy because without holiness on earth, we will never be prepared to enjoy heaven. I do not know what others may think, 
But to me, it does seem clear that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. It cannot be otherwise. People may say in a vague way that they hope to get to heaven, but they do not consider what they say. There must be a certain fitness for the inheritance of the saints in light. What a powerful motivator as you think about pursuing godliness to be fitted right for heaven, to maximize enjoyment of all that God has in store for the saints that he has called. Now, if you remember Peter's own story, these verses are much more powerful. I was thinking about this, and obviously Peter, who wrote Second Peter, was a real disciple of Jesus. Sometimes we disconnect the two, but remember the kind of disciple Peter was. He was very impulsive. He was bold. He was courageous, but man, he made a lot of mistakes. Like at one point, Matthew 26, verse 35, he declares to Jesus, Jesus, I will follow you until the very end. I will even be willing to die for you, right? Bull claim, but not even 35 verses later in Matthew 26, we see Peter denying Jesus three times. He actually goes as far as to say, I've not even heard or know of Jesus, Now, imagine what that must have been like for Peter the disciple, to to go from following Jesus for three years, hearing all of the sermons, seeing all of the miracles, being so close to Jesus, and then to deny him. Imagine the weight of guilt that he felt, The, the amount of shame, feeling like a failure, betraying Jesus. Perhaps Peter would even say, yeah, at that point in my life, I was verse 9. I was the backslider headed to apostasy. And when you take a a step back and you consider the life of Peter, you have to ask the question, why did Peter change? What was the turning point for Peter to go from that to actually becoming a leader in the early church, to confirming his election, to being restored, writing two books in the New Testament? What was it for Peter? Was it the message of performance that was given to Jesus? Did Jesus pull him aside after the resurrection and say, hey, Peter, we've got some great plans in store for you, but before we do that, you need to do A, B, and C for us. You need to perform some good works. You need to, to, to be a good Christian before you're handed this. Was it the message of shame? This message of, yeah, Peter, we've got, we had some great things for you, but because you messed up, you're going to be riding the bench now? We're not really going to use you much in the early church. We want you to to feel the weight of your mistakes. No, it wasn't the message of performance. It wasn't the message of shame. It was the message of grace, the message of of grace and the kindness of the Lord, Jesus' love towards Peter. See, there's an epic scene, epic scene in John chapter 21, where the resurrected Jesus is on the beach having breakfast with this fisherman named Peter who's filled with shame and guilt. And they're having this conversation and and Jesus is about ready to task him with being this leader of the early church. But before he does, does Jesus whip out this to-do list that he wants Peter to accomplish before he gives him that title? No. He centers the conversation on love. Isn't that crazy? He says three times, Peter, do you love me? No, 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 Peter, do you truly love me? 
No, Peter, do you really love me with all that you are? Basically, Jesus is saying to Peter, look, I know you have failed. I know you have fallen into sin. But if you love me above all, godliness will follow. Christ-likeness will follow. Obedience will follow. See, the power and the desire to obey God flows out of the reality of God's love and grace for us, not the other way around. Uh, I'm convinced if, if Peter was up here preaching to us today, he would say something like this. He would say, look, I know that some of you have fallen into sin. I know some of you have failed God. So did I. I had the unwanted companions of guilt and shame for far too long. I had them in my life. They were all-encompassing. But then I think Peter would declare that in God, there is hope and there is grace. I think Peter would shout from the mountaintops that because of Jesus, all of your sins can be washed away, clean and forgiven once and for all. But then I think Peter would also say, that he's not only forgiven you, he's given you his divine power so that you can live a godly life. It's time to get up. It's time to stand to your feet, stop wallowing in your guilt and shame and mistakes, and start back on the path of righteousness in his divine power. I think he charges with that. And I just wonder, who needs to hear that today? Who has fallen into sin or fallen into some sort of behavior of, of disobedience where you need to hear, maybe even put yourself in the shoes of Peter on the beach with Jesus and hear Jesus say and whisper to you, I've already paid for that sin. I've already dealt with it on the cross. Let's go and pursue godliness. Use the power and the grace that I've given you. Look, I just want to, I'll close with this, I promise. But look, maybe you find yourself today as a doubting believer. Maybe you find yourself as a type of Christian who is continually needing to repent of your sin, continually needing to confess of your sin, continually needing to cling to God's promises, and, and you're discovering all these different areas of unbelief, and you're praying out of desperation. Look, if that's you today... That does not make you a defective Christian. That makes you a normal Christian. That makes you a, a real Christian. The Christian life is one of war and waging it against sin and pursuing godliness with all that you are. So look, we do not despair because of our failure. We are not paralyzed because of our hopelessness, we confess our failure to Jesus, who promises to cleanse us, that we embrace the forgiveness that he bought for us, and we stand on two feet on the wrath-removing sacrifice that Jesus provided on the cross. And we reassure our hearts, the way God sees us is in Jesus. God sees us through our great advocate, our perfect advocate, Jesus Christ, who promises to sustain us until the very end with his infinite power. So look, there is something in this passage for all of us. All of us have the same step today. Look to Jesus. If you felt comfort, caution, conviction, look to Jesus today. He has everything that you need.